Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. The episode we've got for you all today, The Case of the Honolulu Strangler, was originally released on our Patreon feed back in June this year. We wanted to give you a complete example, not just a preview, of the type of content we'll be producing on Patreon moving forward. These new premium Blue Label episodes will be delivered monthly, alongside many other benefits such as ad-free regular episodes, blooper reels, polls, Q&As and discounts in our merch store. In lieu of releasing this episode on the main feed, we've done a special edition Patreon bonus episode for all of our supporters that's out right now, covering the man himself, Darren Hinch. This Honolulu Strangler episode is reflective of the quality of content we'll be delivering, so if you enjoy the episode today, consider jumping on board the Patreon train. For the next week, you can sign up for $2 per month and receive all of the aforementioned perks for the lifetime of your subscription, and those doors will remain open until 5pm next Sunday, the 11th of August, that's Australian Eastern Standard Time, at which time our new tier structures will kick in, which we covered in last week's episode. But that's enough of the curly stuff. Thanks for listening, everyone. Let's get into it. Welcome, everyone, to another action-packed Patreon episode. Yes, welcome, everyone. Hello. Yes, good to be back on Patreon. We haven't been here enough recently, it feels, because I know. we've been both a little under the weather, so looking forward to uh, getting back on the Patreon bandwagon. Uh, to kick things off, we just wanted to say thanks to our uh, our Patreon supporters for the ongoing support. We've both been a little under the weather recently, so not as prolific with our uh, creation as in the past. So we're we're probably slanting more that way with our Patreon stuff, focusing more on the on the quality of these episodes that we do for you, and then trying to weave in some more of the fun stuff like the blooper reels. And we got plans for a few live chats and AMAs coming up too, but. We've just finished up our main episode this week on Derek Percy, Chloe, which I think we've both had enough of feces for the yeah, time being. Absolutely. Pretty sick and twisted story. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Foul, really. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He had a, a sick mind, that guy. So it doesn't get much better. There's no no excrement in this episode, which is good, but... Uh, 
We're going to be tackling the Beaumont children case next week. Yeah. That's a a massive one, Um, Mm. one that we, I think we've sort of talked about from the get-go that we would eventually get to, probably getting to it a bit sooner than we thought, but Mm. with the way the the season's shaping up, uh, we're going to take the opportunity to cover that one next week. Yep. As we mentioned in the main episode, we're making a stop in Hawaii to <laughs> refuel. This is <laughs> you're loving this. <laughs> I'm being on the storyline of this. Uh, of this, in case you guys can't tell, Chloe had a chuckle when I explained that the flights in the 80s couldn't go direct from, say, LA to Sydney, so they had to stop in Hawaii to refuel. So I've used that time period of when. Wilder and Bradford were operating and the fact that the flights had to stop to justify <laughs> us talking about a case in Hawaii. So, Is antidote really that effective if you have to <laughs> spend a couple of minutes <laughs> explaining it? I don't know. But. <laughs> Is it an antidote or an anecdote? Uh-huh. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I've never been to Hawaii. Have you? Yeah, I have. You have? Yeah, I've been to the, where we're talking about today actually. Really? Yeah. Is it like it is in the movies? No. No? I didn't find it that way. I found um, that with Paris, yes. It's probably really similar. Mm-hmm. I, I found um, it's warm um, and there are a lot of lower socioeconomic areas there um, and people sleeping rough. Yeah, a right. A lot of people sleeping rough. So okay. that's what I found. That's what I remember about it, unfortunately. But I stayed on the main island right in the main tourist part and I yep. think that was a poor choice. Okay. Yeah, I've only seen it on The Descendants with George Clooney. <laughs> remember that movie? Yeah. We had a friend from high school. We're talking about high school people off air, but we had a high school friend from Hawaii, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Jeremy. Yeah. Do you remember was, him? Yeah, I do. He was great. He was a fluent, I think he still is, was and still is a fluent martial artist. So uh, if his Instagram's anything to go by anyway. And it would have been handy to have Jeremy around in the 80s when a string of innocent females went missing and their bodies uh, would eventually be discovered in the days after their mur- uh, after this. Uh, murdered, they'd been strangled, bound and sexually assaulted. So... That's quite a, a gruesome segue there, moving from a high school friend to that. But uh, but it was a dark time in the otherwise sunny state and uh, the usually vibrant and welcoming community became paranoid. Nothing like this had ever happened in Hawaii before and everyone was asking who was doing this, was it one of their own, and who would be next? Detective Louise Souza saw the body. It was the same again. Bound with parachute cord, looped around the wrists, then over and under, through the wrists. A distinctive knot with a distinctive material. The same offender as before. This victim, too, had been raped, strangled, and submerged in the water of Kehi Lagoon. The killer had used an electrical power cord to secure her leg to the rocks, an obvious sign that he wanted her body to be found. He wanted to admire his work, to feel the power, to look out across the water on Oahu, knowing that he could take someone's life whenever he pleased. And there was nothing the police could do about it. Louise Susan knew then they had their first serial killer on the peaceful island of Oahu, and things would never be the same. Hawaii became a state of the USA on the 21st of August 1959. There are 137 Hawaiian islands which span for about 2,400 kilometres 
forming the entire volcanic Hawaiian archipelago. But at the southeastern end, there are eight main islands. Aside from the conjured mental images that most people would have of Hawaii, for me it was ukuleles, grass skirts and floral lays, Hawaii has beautiful natural scenery, warm tropical climate, pristine beaches and picturesque ocean surroundings. And for that reason, it attracts an abundance of tourists and surfers each and every year. The island of Oahu, which means the gathering place, is the third largest of the Hawaiian islands. There's around 1 million people who live there, which accounts for approximately two-thirds of the entire state's population. So the other third are mostly on the seven big islands. Oahu is the third biggest in landmass, but the biggest in terms of people and industry. Residents of Oahu refer to themselves as locals, which is a common thing throughout Hawaii. Landmarks around Oahu include the famous Waikiki Beach and Pearl Harbour, so there's decent US military presence there. The capital city of Oahu is Honolulu, and it's the largest city in Hawaii. It's the central hub effectively going to the US mainland and coming back into Hawaii. You go through Honolulu by and large. Along with the aforementioned military presence, Honolulu is actually a fairly major international business hub, and it's host to a diverse range of Pacific cultures, cuisines and traditions, with the main influence being Polynesian. Fun fact, former President Barack Obama was born here as well. Honolulu is also the most remote city of its size in the world and it gained historical recognition following the attack on the uh, aforementioned Pearl Harbor by Japan on December the 7th, 1941. But on our Patreon aeroplane, we're flying back across the Pacific in the year 1985, the year after Christopher Wilder went on his cross-country killing spree on the US mainland. And I think it's fair to say that William Bradford was already operating well under the radar. In the broader US, there was a recession in 1981-82. Jimmy Carter would vacate the White House and there'd be a following eight years of Ronald Reagan administration in office. Reagan would attempt to stimulate the economy following the recession and through the mid-80s, unemployment would hit a peak and then drop. Within Hawaii specifically, there'd be large amounts of foreign investment in hotels and resorts, and a lot of people moving to the area for military jobs. There was also a booming telecommunications in Hawaii around this time. There'd inevitably be a US stock market crash in 87, but before that happened in 85-86, Hawaii, Oahu and its capital Honolulu would see, alongside the rise in population, a spike in violent crime. And this was a big deal and really noticeable. Honolulu very much had a small town vibe, even though it was a big city. Everyone knew one another, seemingly, and when something serious like a crime would happen, people would often find that they had some connection, directly or indirectly. And it was at this time, against this backdrop, a serial killer known as the Honolulu Strangler would abduct, rape and strangle a number of female victims in the otherwise peaceful state of swaying palms and crystal clear waters. 25-year-old Vicky Purdy lived in Mililani with her husband Gary, who was a helicopter pilot in the US Army. The pair had met back on the mainland in Marietta, Georgia, just after graduating high school. Vicky had initially married Gary's cousin, but that didn't work out, and she and Gary ended up together after this had run its course. Gary and Vicky had an adventurous marriage. 
Vicky was described as a feisty, attractive blonde, a former cheerleader, and she liked to go out and hit the clubs without Gary. She was very outgoing. When the opportunity to move to Hawaii came up through Gary's work in the army, Vicky was excited. She'd always wanted to live in the Hawaiian Islands and it was said to have had a positive impact on their marriage of five years to that point. But since moving to Hawaii just a few months earlier, things hadn't quite panned out for Vicky and Gary as they'd hoped in terms of the lifestyle they had there. It wasn't exactly what Vicky had hoped. She was working at the local Wahiawa video store, which was known as having a fairly extensive trade in pornographic titles, and Gary felt like she'd fallen in with some friends who were maybe not the most positive of influences. On the 29th of May 1985, Vicky gave Gary a kiss and left their home to go clubbing in Waikiki with some friends. Gary expected her home by 9pm, and when she didn't show, he started to pager her again and again, and when there was no response, he went frantically searching for her. Vicky left her home on Wednesday night but failed to meet up with her friends. She called them around 10pm but did not meet them as planned. She was last seen by the taxi driver who drove her to the Shorebird Hotel at 12am, apparently to retrieve her car, which was later found by Gary, newly dented in the hotel parking lot. The next morning, her body was found down an embankment at Kehi Lagoon, wearing her yellow jumpsuit and red belt. Her hands were bound behind her back with parachute cord and she'd been raped and strangled. One of the first angles pursued by investigators concerning the murder of Vicky was her association with the video rental store where she worked. Her husband told police he suspected her death to be associated with her job, working at this video rental place that also traded extensively in pornographic material. It was undeniable that the store had a bad reputation and had already seen deadly violence in the past. In December 1984, two women, a worker and the co-owner of the store, were stabbed to death. That gruesome case, however, was never tied to the murder of Vicky Purdy. Given the sexual nature of the crime, Honolulu detectives surmised that maybe a porn-obsessed customer of the video store had stalked and attacked Vicky. After her murder, Gary objected when people implied that his wife had worked at a sleazy place, and he said that he never knew that the store itself had been hit by violence less than a year prior. Vicky's death marked the beginning of what would become the serial killings, but at the time it was an isolated case. Gary left Hawaii after Vicky's death and vowed not to return unless the killer was brought to justice. Regina Sakamoto woke on the morning of January 14 and planned to commute by bus where she attended Leilahua High School. She was a pretty 17-year-old girl with dark blonde hair and a confident smile. She was planning on attending Hawaii Pacific University in the autumn. She was described as shy but friendly, kind and careful. Regina was close with her mother, had a boyfriend and at least one close girlfriend from the same high school. Regina was born in Kansas and mainly lived with her maternal grandmother until the age of five when her mother, also named Regina, met Maurice Sakamoto at a military base in California. Maurice adopted Regina and married her mother before moving them to Hawaii to help raise Regina for the next 10 years. The couple divorced when Regina was 15 and despite young Regina still making the effort to see him, the pair grew apart. The divorce had left bad feelings between Regina's mother and Sakamoto as he didn't agree with what he described as 
the seedy and unsafe neighbourhood that Regina had relocated herself and their daughter to. He warned her mother that the pretty teenager would be a target in a community that he thought was dangerous and filled with transients. She had missed her bus from Waipahu to school on January the 14th, 86, and was last heard from by her boyfriend at around 7.15am when she called him to let him know that she would be late. On January the 15th, her body was found once again at Kehi Lagoon, wearing her blue tank top and white sweatshirt, but her lower body was unclothed. Her hands were bound behind her back, again with a parachute cord. She had been raped and strangled. This second case led police to suspect the same killer as the first because of the same MO. However, this was not widely accepted by police and the public were not given any indication that these cases were linked. Detectives in the cases could see evidence of strangulation from tiny red pinpoint marks on the face, eyes and eyelids of both victims. These are called petechial hemorrhaging and are caused by pressure that occurs as a result of strangulation. Other evidence that indicated strangulation in both cases were ligature furrows in the victims' necks, which uh, remained there even after the ligature was removed. Victims' arms were bound behind their backs and these were also left with ligature marks. Omar Sakamoto, Regina's brother, was in the fifth grade at the time and he said of his sister that she was kind, fun-loving, she babysat him and he looked up to her. So despite the police not officially linking these first two murders, I think we can see that there's a clear connection and pattern here. Also, the bodies are found the very next day on both cases, so that's seeming to me to be a bit of a power move by the offender. He's wanting the bodies, his handiwork, to be discovered. Denise Hughes was a young 21-year-old newlywed living in Hawaii. She was tall, had a warm smile, round face and curly brown hair. She worked as a secretary for a long-distance telephone company. Originally from Washington State, she moved to Hawaii just five months before her death. Her husband Charles served in the Navy, stationed aboard a ship at Pearl Harbor. They met during her vacation to Hawaii only months earlier, and they had quickly married in Seattle before returning to the islands to live. Denise was a very likeable young woman and very loved by her family. Her co-workers, whom she had only been working with for a short time, quickly became friends with her and accompanied her on shopping trips, played racquetball together. She was described as outgoing, a hard worker, and active in her Christian church group. Her supervisor was amazed at her constant smile. Her mother, Linda, was only 17 when Denise was born, and when she was age six, Linda married a man who adopted Denise, Linda was worried that Denise had married too young and wasn't happy about her moving to Hawaii and where she was living. Denise commuted by bus and Linda commented that Denise timed her walk from the house to the bus stop to avoid having to wait there uh, alone as Pearl City Street, where she lived, was quite remote. Denise didn't show up for work on January 30 and was found dead in the Moanalua stream by three young fishermen on February 1st. This was close to where the first two victims were found. Her decomposing body was clothed in a blue dress, wrapped in a blue tarp, and with her hands bound with a paracord. She had been sexually assaulted, strangled, wrapped and rolled down the embankment. Friends and family gathered $7,000 to reward anyone who brought forth information that could lead to the conviction of the killer. 
So we have a clearly established pattern here now and also a closer gap between the second and third killings, which is a worrying sign of escalation. Following the discovery of Denise's body, the Honolulu Police Department, then headed by Major Chester Hughes, no relation to Denise, decided to form a serial killer task force. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Prompted by the third body, the task force was established on February the 5th. Hughes was polite and friendly with reporters, even though the official police position was to avoid the media at this time. These interviews conducted by reporters wouldn't yield any useful information, as Hughes was skilled in the art of saying many words without giving any tangible information. This useful skill was important when investigators wanted to keep crucial details away from public scrutiny. The police department needed to be careful when striking a balance between warning people that a killer was on the loose and not inciting panic. And they needed to catch the killer. The task force was reportedly funded by the local travel bureau, which is understandable considering this was the booming industry in Hawaii, so the news of a a serial killer on the otherwise peaceful island was not something they wanted unsolved for very long. The task force was immediately pitted against massive odds, By 1986, Oahu was the centre of a telecommunications boom, as you mentioned in the intro there, Chloe, and it attracted thousands of migrant workers. Hawaii was also the home to a big military population, as we said, Army, Navy and Marine Corps installations are all over the place. Between 85 and 86, 10.5 million people visited Hawaii as tourists, so the killer could have come from any one of these populations. Police also set up sting operations using policewomen around the Kihi Lagoon and the Honolulu Airport to try and catch the predator in the act. But in the end, this tactic would yield no results. Louise Medeiros had not long lost her mother and on Wednesday, March the 26th, 1986, she was on a late-night flight home to Oahu from Kauai, where she had travelled for the reading of her mother's will. Louise was short and weighed less than 40 kilos... She was 25 years old and had lived an unmotivated life to that point. She left home at an early age and didn't finish high school. She was unemployed at the time of her death and her friends and family described her as having hard times in her life. She spent a lot of her young life wandering. Louise had moved around a few times, but at the time of her death, she lived with her boyfriend in Waipahu and was a single mother to three sons who were staying with her boyfriend and his family while she was away. 
Louise was also three months pregnant the time she disappeared. Her sister urged her to take a flight the next day as she didn't want Louise travelling and catching a bus alone at night. But Louise shrugged off this suggestion, wanting to get home to her boyfriend and three sons. Louise disembarked the aeroplane and disappeared. Her decomposing body was found on the 2nd of April near Waikili Stream by road workers. She was wearing a red and white flowered blouse she had on when she boarded the plane in Kauai, but her lower body was unclothed and her hands were bound behind her back. So Louise was the fourth victim in these serial killings. The location of where Louise's body was found was a bit of an outlier and we'll post a map of the locations where the victim's bodies were discovered so you can see this. Louise wasn't found in the same area and on the map it looks like a fair distance but in reality it wasn't a long drive away at all. And despite the differing locations there were still similarities of the paracord bound wrists. The killer had tied them in a distinctive way too As we mentioned in the intro, according to police, it was sort of a figure eight side to side then front to back style of tying. So that was consistent with the other cases and that information wasn't known publicly at that time. And secondly, it appeared the killer had gone to some lengths to ensure the body, although in a different location, was still dumped in water, presumably to make it difficult to recover forensic evidence from the body. When you look at the area Louise's body was found, there was a bridge where she'd been dropped from and down below there was quite a densely shrubbed and treed area. Driving through there on occasion, you wouldn't necessarily see the creek at the bottom of the gorge, but if you regularly travelled that road, you'd be more likely to know it. So this suggested to the police that the killer may well be local, not a military serviceman or recent telecommunications blow-in or a tourist for that matter and they may have travelled this route for work. Linda Pesci left work late in the evening on Tuesday, April the 29th, strutting out of the office in her light blue turtleneck dress, white cotton jacket and white high heels. She had a smile on her face as she thought about the promotion she'd just been given. Linda had brown hair and was a 36-year-old single mother and sales representative for McCaw Telepage in Kakaako. Linda was described as a bold, strong person, quick with an opinion and fearless. She was medium height and build, but considered to be tough and streetwise. Linda had an unconventional past, originally from Marin County, California. She left college in the 70s to hitchhike across the country by herself, striking out on adventures. She flew to Honolulu and worked as a dancer in a nightclub, She moved to Guam and danced in other clubs before moving back to Hawaii. Linda had become considerably less wild after the birth of her daughter seven years prior. Linda was not expected home till late on Tuesday evening due to work, but when on Wednesday morning she had still not returned home and it was confirmed that she had not shown up for work, she was reported missing by her roommate. Police located her car that afternoon, parked on the side of the Nimitz Highway viaduct, leading to the H1 freeway near the airport. Witnesses told police that they saw the car parked on the roadside with its emergency flashes on at 7pm the night before. Now this next part I've read conflicting reports. A Caucasian man by the name of Howard Gay contacted police about a body he thought he'd stumbled across located at Sand Island near Honolulu. 
On May the 3rd, four days after Linda learned of her promotion, Gay took police to Sand Island only to find pig bones. Other reports said Gay had told police a psychic informed him that there was a body in this location. Subsequent searches of the entire island eventually found Linda Pesci's body. She was nude with her hands bound behind her back with paracord. Linda was the fifth victim of the Honolulu Strangler. By this time, fear stalked the community of Honolulu. People were nervous and on high alert. Gun sales shot through the roof, women signed up for self-defence classes and police were giving tips to community groups across the island. The attacks seemed to be targeting women who were in the wrong place at the wrong time, so a coalition of women's groups provided advice and warnings to women on ways to protect themselves. The Honolulu Police Department had established a 27-person serial killer task force on February the 5th with the help from the FBI and the Green River Task Force. The killer's profile was that of an opportunist who attacked women who were vulnerable, such as at bus stops, not one who stalks his victims. He also likely lived or worked in the area of the attacks, Waipahu or Sand Island. The killings prompted the police department to add an FBI profiler to the task force, and this profiler described the offender as a Caucasian male in his 30s to 40s with no criminal record. He suspected the killer targeted vulnerable women near where he lived or worked. Police set up roadblocks at the time of the Pesci murders to question frequent commuters. Witnesses came forward saying they had seen a light-coloured van and a Caucasian or mixed-race man with Pesci's car. Following the discovery of Pesci's body, police arrested the informant, Howard Gay, on May 9th as the primary suspect. Gay's ex-wife and girlfriend described him as a smooth talker. They also provided potentially incriminating fetish clues. Both women recalled engaging in bondage activity, allowing him to tie them up and have sex with their hands bound behind their back. His girlfriend relayed that on nights after they'd fought, he would leave the house and that these were the same nights the murders had occurred. Gay lived in Ever Beach and worked as a mechanic at one of the air freight carriers, Flying Tiger Cargo, along Lagoon Drive. Police felt that Gay was a strong suspect because he inserted himself into the crime by helping them find the last victim, which was an arrogant move. He fit the killer profile, Caucasian, 30s to 40s, had the physical strength and ability to commit these crimes due to the nature of his work as a mechanic for the airport cargo company. His work also gave him access to parachute cord, which was used to tie up the victims. He drove a light-coloured van and drove along the route where the victims were abducted. And although no DNA testing was available at this time, there was an interesting scientific determination made. On the vaginal swabs taken from some of the victims, there were high levels of ejaculatory fluid, but very few sperm. One of the medical examiners gave a possible reasoning for this being that the offender had a vasectomy. Howard Gay's ex-wife confirmed that he'd had a vasectomy. She also filled in some backstory of the man. She and Gay had got together in 1968. They were high school sweethearts. They lived in California for 10 years and had two boys together. In 1980, Gay was transferred by Tiger Airlines to Hawaii for work, but he didn't take his wife or the kids with him. 
and I'm guessing he got himself this other mentioned girlfriend while in Hawaii. One time his wife flew out with his boys to surprise Gay, expecting a warm welcome, but he reacted strangely. He was seemingly agitated at their presence and didn't want them to come back to his place, instead insisting his wife and the boys stay at a nearby hotel before sending them packing back to the mainland only a couple of days later. Once again, this could have had to do with his extracurricular activities. Howard Gay was arrested on May the 9th. He came into the station voluntarily, but it was late, 8pm, by the time detectives started interrogating him. Lieutenant Louise Souza was overseeing the interrogation and when, at 3am, Gay commented he was tired, Souza instructed the detectives to arrest the suspect because police can't do what is considered inherent coercion, such as depriving them of food, water, sleep, or interviewing them under blinding light or harsh conditions. During this break in the interview, Gay was held in the cell block under the supervision of inexperienced recruits, and subsequently, they allowed him access to a female attorney who had been retained by Gay's girlfriend at the time. After this meeting, Gay was advised not to speak to police any further, and he was released just 10 short hours after his arrest. Sousa commented that allowing the intervention of an attorney was a crucial mistake in the investigation, and he believes that Gay was on the brink of breaking and telling police what happened. Sousa watched as the detectives interrogated him, and Gay's body language showed telltale signs associated with guilt, arms crossed, head down, defensive. Gay also reportedly failed a polygraph test while in police custody. I also heard the result was inconclusive, so I don't know if that's the same as a fail, either a pass or you fail kind of deal, not sure. Despite Gay being a strong suspect for these murders, there wasn't enough physical evidence tying him to the crimes, and prosecutors at the time didn't want to risk charging him with such a weak case. They only had one shot at it. If he got off, they couldn't retry him. So they were really waiting for technology to advance so they could, in turn, advance their case. Interestingly, only a few weeks later in June, not long after his arrest, Gay flew back to California to see his son graduate high school. Only three days after graduating, Gay's son was tragically killed on the side of the road while changing a car tyre. After this, it was said that Gay became a born-again Christian. There was no other suspects to investigate and the cases went cold, but there were also no other killings after this time. Police followed Gay and a $25,000 reward for information was put out by private businesses. Two months after Gay was arrested and released, a woman came forward and claimed she saw Pesci with a man on the night of her murder. She successfully picked Gay out of a photo lineup as the man, She did not want to be a witness because she believed that he saw her as well. Another witness identified him as the guy trying to give her a ride from her job at the La Mariana Sailing Club on the Kihi Lagoon waterfront. This is her story. Well, there was this one guy that would come in two, three times a week, maybe more, always for lunch. And he would sit in that area right over there. If you want to follow me, I'll show you. Sure, yeah. You know, it's not exactly the way it was, but it's pretty close. So he'd sit in any one of these tables, and I'd go up to him and take his order. And he looked like a nice, clean-cut kind of guy 
looked very harmless, actually. But there was something about him that always creeped me out. Just something I couldn't put my finger on, but I knew there was something wrong with this guy. He was always watching me wherever I was went with, you know, delivering the food and the drinks. His eyes were always watching me. After a while, he started getting kind of bold, and I guess he noticed that I was walking to the bus stop, which is kind of like a half a mile away, pretty far. He started saying that he'd give me a ride home, and I told him no every time. How insistent was he on giving you a ride? Was it a pushy form of insistence, or was it like, hey, you've known me all this time, come on? Like, At first he way? was nice about it, but as time progressed, he started getting a little bit more aggressive about it. So anyhow, this one day, I was really tired, more than normal. I didn't know at the time that I was six weeks pregnant. And he was giving me a bad time. He kept insisting, insisting that he wanted to give me a ride home. So there was a group of bikers that lived out on a barge out there. They had it anchored. They'd come in there as regulars too. They were really nice guys after I got to know them. One of them noticed that I was agitated and he asked me what was wrong. I explained to him that there's this guy that's really bugging me and he won't take no for an answer. And he's insisting that he gives me a ride home. So the biker said, you know what? I will take you home and drop you off safely in front of your door. Something about him made me feel totally comfortable. I said, okay. I leave with him. And this guy was watching and he just got really mad. He stood up and he slammed down his drink and he stormed out of here. A couple of days later, on the news, they said that they had the Honolulu Strangler in custody. And then after that, did he ever come back again? No. Later on, I found out the Strangler had a white cargo van, and so did he. The, the, the same individual that you're describing yes. had a white cargo van? Yes. And that's when it all kind of made sense to me. That feeling that I had that I couldn't explain. I know that this guy was the Strangler. I just know it. I can never prove it. But this guy was the Strangler. Police commented that if DNA testing was available at the time, they believed that they could have been able to catch the offender. But there's a couple of other cases that are said to be possibly linked to the Honolulu Strangler. One murder and one disappearance. Lisa Al kissed her boyfriend goodnight just after midnight on January the 21st, 1982. So a few years earlier, but Howard Gay was in Hawaii at this time. Al was only 19 years old and worked as a hairdresser in Kailua. She had gone to her boyfriend's sister's apartment in Makiki for dinner earlier that evening. Al had only had her licence for two days and on this rainy night, her and her boyfriend had driven there separately. Her car was later found parked along the highway in Kailua near Kapa Quarry Road. Her purse was in the car, but her licence and registration were missing. There was a huge search of the surrounding areas and Al's parents were hopeful of good news, but after days of searching, police feared the worst. Witnesses also reported seeing a car with blue flashing grill lights behind Lisa's car. 
that led to speculation that someone posing as a police officer or even a real police officer had something to do with it. On January 31, 1982, 10 days after her car was found abandoned, a jogger and his dog found Al's body in the brush at Makiki. Her body was naked and decomposing. Police were never able to identify a cause of death. It was suggested by some that the Honolulu Strangler may have killed the 19-year-old in years later, but a more likely scenario, according to retired police in Hawaii, relates back to the police officer theory. Apparently an officer was actually interviewed about the case, but he subsequently voluntarily resigned of his own accord and left the island. A second case still unsolved is the disappearance of Diane Suzuki. Diane Suzuki was a 19-year-old dancer and student at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She was short, weighing just under 50 kilograms with a slim build and of Japanese descent. She was last seen at about 5pm on July the 6th, 1985, so in the right time period, outside the Rosalie Woodson Dance Academy in Aia, where she was employed as a dance instructor. She was reported missing, but police never found her body and no one was ever charged. Suzuki's disappearance, however, did not fit the profile of the Honolulu Strangler murders. However, many have still speculated that her disappearance could be attributed to the serial offender. Suzuki's case has since been the focus of one of the most notorious modern criminal investigations in the history of the state of Hawaii. The Diane Suzuki investigation was the first instance in which the Honolulu Police Department used luminol and other technological advances in forensic science. The more popular theory in Diane Suzuki's case was that a photographer she'd worked with was involved in her disappearance and probable murder. I think there was a more recent coronial inquiry on that, but once again, no one was charged. There was also a report I heard about online where a woman who was a tourist visiting Hawaii in 1982 claimed to have been attacked and bound in a similar manner to the strangler victims, but the perpetrator mistied her on this occasion and she was able to struggle free and get away. She reported this to police, but nothing really came of that. The offender wasn't identified and it'd be three years later before the first confirmed murder in the serial killings but she believed she was a survivor of the Honolulu Strangler. Interesting little tale that I thought was worth mentioning because it was a few years earlier than the official victims, but if it's true, it could show some early signs of the perpetrator's intent. Howard Gay passed away in 2012, and all of these murders remain technically unsolved to this day. However, there's a large degree of confidence around the prime suspect in the five Strangler murders. Moving forward to the year 2000, and three more attacks occurred on the Hawaiian island of Kauai, initially sparking fears that the Honolulu Strangler had returned to the picturesque island state. He hadn't, and it was quickly ruled out by location, MO and victim type that this was unrelated. Investigators believed that a new serial killer was on the loose, with three victims that fitted the same profile and had similar physical characteristics. The Kawhi serial killer remains at large to this day, and we're going to talk about him on an upcoming minisode. But that's the case of the Honolulu Strangler Clue. Yeah, man, I hate unsolved crimes, or at least ones where the person who seems 
to be connected isn't in jail for the crime. Mm. Not only in this case did five women lose their lives, but no justice was served and oh, I just hate that. Um, this is one of those cases where the evidence available for the time really didn't help. There was so much circumstantial evidence and things that we know now are unreliable, like doing lineup identifications. But as we've said and before, it's easy to sit here and look back and judge. But I do think the police did a good job in their case for what it's worth. Um, and Gay, the prime suspect, just seemed just out of reach for a variety of reasons. And the poor women in this story, going through all of their stories, one of which at least you can picture a really clear image of their last moments or the last things they did before they went missing, I can't help but think what could have been from them. Uh, five people connected to one killer potentially. That is just so many lives affected. It's, it's so jarring. A very interesting case in an interesting setting. Being international and such a tropical location, it's easy in my mind anyway to sort of fictionalise it and uh, when you conjure the, the touristic images of the place and factor that it was mid to late 80s, probably just before we were born, Chloe. But in reality, five women lost their lives, as you said, to this, uh, this guy and these women were wives, mothers, daughters, sisters, aunties, and they've not only had to endure their loss, their families, and uh, but they've had to grapple with the fact, as you said, that the offender was never charged and never brought to justice. In watching the uh, Breaking Homicide documentary on this, which I really enjoyed, I thought the ex-detective and the forensic psychologist did a great job. For me, it really humanised these victims with the photos and talking to family members and the the ex-lead detective on the case, uh, Louis Souza, coming forward and almost clearing his mind of something that had clearly haunted him for a long time too. It showed the effect that a series of despicable acts like this has on people outside of the obvious family connections too. They were very, very confident on Howard Gay being the guy. They even interviewed uh, in this doco the retired prosecutor on this, uh, and you can tell it still ate him up as well to this day that they weren't able to put uh, this guy away. They were all confident at the time too, but, you know, they only had one shot at it, so if they screwed it up, he would have gotten off anyway. I think there might have been scope to revisit all of this before Gay died, and there were conflicting reports, whether it was 2005 or 2012 that he died, but there, there seems like there was some time where there could have been some advances to revisit things there, but... Them's the breaks, I guess. Uh, you never know what roadblocks these organisations have to deal with um, at the time. Yeah. Um, and you have an interesting segment that you want to talk about now <laughs> to lift the mood a little bit after that gruesome tale. I don't know it's really <laughs> lifting the mood, but we have a happy thoughts segment on the main episode, which, as we've said, wasn't stolen from my favourite murder at all. It was 100% <laughs> your original idea, Chloe. <laughs> On Patreon, I thought we we could start doing something a bit different, and I was inspired when I went away the other weekend. We um we Airbnb a place, and at the house there was a a Festivus board game. And for those of you who don't know what Festivus is, here's the uh, succinct Wikipedia rundown. Festivus is a secular holiday celebrated on December 23 as an alternative to the pressures and commercialism of the Christmas season. Originally created by author Daniel O'Keefe. Festivus ended popular culture after it was made the focus of the 1997 Seinfeld episode The Strike, which O'Keefe's son Dan O'Keefe co-wrote. 
The non-commercial holiday celebration as depicted on Seinfeld occurs on December 23, includes a festivist dinner, an unadorned aluminium festivist pole, practices such as the airing of grievances and feats of strength, and the labelling of easily explainable events as festivist miracles. So we're going to do airing of grievances at the end of our Patreon episodes moving forward, a slightly less positive but hopefully humorous and enlightening younger sibling to our happy thoughts segment. (laughs) So to start it off, do you have a grievance? I do, and you have to come up with one as well. You have to participate in this. (laughs) I'm nervous of this one. (laughs) As I do with the happy thoughts. (laughs) Well, my grievance was, was... it's not with McDonald's specifically, but I'll tell the story. It's <laughs> Chloe and I were at McDonald's tonight before we came here to record. That's an, an a, we don't regularly do that. Purging their Wi Fi. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a long story as to why we were there. It's not a regular thing, but we were there and this really strange thing happened where you went to the counter and they no one was there to serve you anymore. There was no people and you had to. It, would, it had been completely automated with these little computers that stand up in the aisle and so no one... T- <laughs> this was... I have to explain, Sean, we're full-on 60-year-old man, <laughs> like, whinging and hands on hips, gasping around, but it was saying re- loudly, like, this is ridiculous. It I was ridiculous. I can't believe there's no people. You can't get services. <laughs> there was no people there to order from. People don't want to... And and the other thing was, is that the bench, there was a bench there and it was full of orders for Uber Eats, Deliveroo, whatever the fuck. <laughs> and it's like, there, but there were no people. No. No one to talk to and people didn't walk into the store to order anything. So people don't want to walk and people don't want to talk mm. anymore, obviously. And that was my grievance because... I just, I, I didn't know what to do. The McCafe lady was still over there. So, you know, whatever. Yeah. That, the vibes were okay in one part of the store. But yeah, it was, it was, that's my grievance for this week. And it, 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 it it's the, a long the, the broader issue, the broader issue of service, which you don't get, it's dropping off by the wayside. And uh, it was particularly prevalent in Maccas, which once again, I have a problem with them calling it Maccas and rebranding everything Maccas. Just leave as McDonald's. So bogan. It is. Okay. But anyway, that's my, I've aired my grievance for, for this episode. Okay. So, um, all right, mine is, just bear with me. So I've started um, doing some PT training. I go to the gym a lot, but I'm doing one-on-one because I've been doing my own thing for a while and I don't know if I'm doing it wrong. And, you know, you lift heavy things. I don't want to break anything. So I went and did a PT session, started this week and got the bar on my shoulders, started doing squats. And the second I did it, the PT explained to me that I was moving my legs in a weird way to protect them because I used to hurt one of my knees a lot. I used to dislocate it. So I'm compensating for it. Um, So I did it the right way. For one, I can barely walk today. (laughs) Two days later, um, I'm in so much pain because I did the exercise right potentially for the first time in my whole life. And also I got measured for the start of this. It's a challenge. So you get measured and I guess everyone, some might be a winner at the end. The leg that is dodgy is also 
two whole inches bigger than the other one, which is just not right. I did these things. This injury is like 15 years old. I'm in my early 30s, so it's, I'm not old by any means. And I, my body is so faulty already. <laughs> so those two things, I mean, you know, it's big, but this segment makes me nervous. So I feel like, <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> I think they're decent grievances. Okay, great. Hey, and because you can't walk because of that injury, I know where you can get your food. <laughs> McDonald's. McDonald's. <laughs> because they don't like walking there. There's no walking. Don't tell them you do a podcast though because they don't like talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was going to open up for if anyone wants to send us their grievances, please don't. No, but, don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, not just your random ones. Um, but if you do have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, don't forget you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. Um, thank you to everyone who's posting in the patron um, page as well. As we said, we're having trouble replying to people, but we are seeing them and I'm replying to people personally. So hopefully you're seeing that. Um, you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Podcast, or find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find us. Thank you to everyone in here who's already done that. And if you can find a moment, please share our show with any friends or colleagues you think might be interested. So next week, we're going to be talking about the disappearance of the Beaumont children, as uh, we said before. On our next Patreon episode in two weeks' time, We've enjoyed this little international tour we've been on, so we're <laughs> going to keep that up, uh, to keep that across Patreon for this season. It won't be a regular thing. We'll still be coming back to Australia on uh, Patreon for the most part. But as we say, we have the flexibility to relax the guidelines a bit here on Patreon. I always feel like <laughs> breaking out a bit of Captain Barbosa from Pirates when I say, <laughs> there aren't so much rules, there are more guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we're going to make a stop in Japan on our next uh, Patreon episode, which is going to be exciting. Ooh. Well, not exciting. It's actually pretty Interesting, sickening. though. Yeah. But uh, in the meantime, thank you all again for your support and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.